0: To the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. If you're new here, welcome. This is a podcast about the fur trade era from the 1500s to the 1840s. Our story today is about a frontiersman who was both hero and hated. He was known as a skilled trailblazer and unmatched as an interpreter. He was also known as one of the country's first terrorists. But was he? With skills matching those of famous frontiersmen like the likes of Jim Bowie and Daniel Boone, it is possible that Simon Gertie is the first in American history to fall victim to the equivalent of a 21st century social media slander campaign. So let me tell you his story, and you can decide. His parents, Irish immigrant Simon Gertie Sr. and English immigrant Mary Newton, were married around 1737 after Simon Sr. had saved enough money from working as a pack horse driver in the Indian trade. Some say he also moonlighted as an independent Indian trader, but there was no license issued to him at this point in time, so it would have been an off-the-books trade. Their small home, located in a town called Chambers Mill, near present-day Fort Hunter, Pennsylvania, was where his brother Thomas was born in 1739. Simon arrived on November 14th, 1741, followed by James in 1743 and George in 1745. On August 10th, 1748, Simon Sr. had succeeded in saving enough earnings to apply for a trading license of his own, and his young family went into business for themselves. Sr. already had a reputation with the natives, and the business quickly took off. But as the east bank of the Susquehanna River became more populated, the Gertie's family's business began to stall, and they set their sights on the west bank of the river with its unspoiled land and expansive native populations to trade with. This took them to the wild lands of present-day Perry County, Pennsylvania. With his stepbrother, John Turner, and nine other families, Simon the Elder moved his family to a new homestead in 1749, settling on the beautiful Sherman's Creek. While the local natives generally liked the Gerties, they were alarmed that so many white settlers were arriving at one time to stake out land in their prime hunting grounds. The tribes appealed to the Pennsylvania government to remove these squatters, and they threatened reprisals. The government sent representatives to warn the settlers that they had to move, and the representatives were resoundingly ignored. On May 22nd, 1750, nine government officials arrived at each homestead in turn, arrested all of the squatters, burned down every building, and killed every piece of livestock. The families were imprisoned to await trial. Even the children. Let's stop here for a second and think about this. Simon Jr. is nine years old at this time, and he's standing there with his sobbing family shackled together, watching these people burn down his home and shoot the family cows. Then they're in prison for nearly a month, until the next court session opens in Chambersburg. At their trials, the Gerties were found guilty, even the children, and ordered to pay between 100 pounds sterling and 500 pounds sterling per person, including the children, which is equivalent to between 26,000 and 40,000 pounds sterling in today's money. That's a huge amount. Upon their release, the Gerties returned to Chambers Mill, and they tried to get back to a normal life. Now, Simon Sr. was no saint. He was known to drink, at times to excess, and by nearly every account I have found of him, he was a mean and surly drunk. Even when he wasn't in his cups, he was known to be short-tempered and regarded as somewhat of a jerk. However, we must remember a few things here. First, he was Irish, and what is normal behavior to one nationality might be looked at by another as barbaric. Anyone who's read any bit of early British history knows how those dignified, civilized Brits felt about the uneducated heathens on the next island to the west. And in this case, the documentation of most events was written by the British. Secondly, eyewitness testimonies are notoriously unreliable since different people see different things and their testimonies are often tainted by opinions and beliefs of others. And thirdly, these accounts were told by someone to someone else who then told someone else who told their first cousin's sister's uncle who wrote it down. The chances of the story being embellished by each retelling are very high. However, there's likely a kernel of truth in there somewhere. The details of what happened next are sketchy at best. One account says he got into a drunken argument with an English officer, and another account says he got into a drunken argument with a native man named The Fish, who ended the dispute by slamming a tomahawk into the back of Simon Sr.'s head, killing him instantly. And yet another account says he was burned at the stake while native women and children danced around him in glee. That account is complete nonsense. Another actually says he got into a drunken argument with a neighbor in Chambers Mill, and the two men challenged each other to a duel. There's no mention of whether or not the other neighbor was also intoxicated, but either way, the two men both pulled pistols, both men shot, and both men completely missed. Swords were then drawn, and Simon Sr. stumbled drunkenly and fell on his back. The neighbor then ran him through, killing him in front of his hysterical wife and children. No matter which story we believe, the end result was the same. Simon Sr. was killed. In 1751, less than a year after being arrested and watching his home burn to the ground, 10-year-old Simon and his family now witnessed the gruesome death of their father. With the family now in dire straits at the loss of their breadwinner, John Turner, the stepbrothers, stepped in and vowed to take care of them. He also vowed to avenge his half-brother's death. So, the story goes. I have found two accounts that say John Turner did just that. In one, he hunted down the Indian known as the Fish and exacted revenge the next year. In the other, it took him two years to find the neighbor that had slain Simon Sr., This account also says that he married Mary Newton Gertie in 1753. Either way, in 1754, John Turner Jr. was born to Mary Newton Gertie. There's a side story here that I've not been able to verify. It says that John Turner was trying to make things right for the Gertie children, while two men named Thomas McKee and George Gibson were plotting to get their hands on Simon Sr.'s estate in Chambers Mill. They appealed to the mayor of Philadelphia, a man by the name of William Plumstead, to be given the rights to Gertie's property, stating that they had extended him a £300 sterling credit to the deceased that was never repaid. The story says that with a little persuasive palm greasing, the mayor backdated their claim to make it look legitimate and the two men became the new owners of the Gertie homestead. While I can't find anything in the court documents for this, I did find several other deeds awarded to Thomas McKee in this area at this time. If you were to look at these land holdings on a map, it makes me think there's some truth to it. McGee suddenly became rich in land holdings one deed at a time, and Turner and the Gerties now found themselves homeless again for the second time in four years. Young Simon would have been about 13 years old. Six months earlier, William Penn had finalized the purchase of the land on the west side of the Susquehanna, and John was able to legally buy land in the Sherman's Valley of Perry County, actually not far from the Gertie's earlier homestead. Here the family began to settle into their new lives as farmers, and for the first year or so, everything went swimmingly. However, there were occasional issues with the local natives, and here's why. William Penn and company purchased the land from the Iroquois tribe. However, the Iroquois didn't actually live there. They were way farther north, and the other tribes were the ones who had to deal with the white man's encroachment. Not the Iroquois. First the Tuscaroras, then the Susquehannocks and Lenape's, then the Shawnee, each spent the time residing in this area of Perry County. So before the lands were sold to Penn, whenever these local natives had an issue with white folks, their delegation must first approach the Iroquois Confederacy, based in Onondaga, New York. Keeping in mind, this is before the time of instant messaging. This meant that any grievances had to be walked or ridden up to New York to be heard. Then the Iroquois Confederacy would have to send a delegation to Pennsylvania's government, adding at least a few weeks to the process. During the long months of waiting for an answer, local tribes would just get sick of the encroachment and take matters into their own hands. So by the time John Turner was moving his family in and setting up shop, the natives had already been seriously disgruntled. The natives now began raiding the white settlements on a frequent basis. And John Turner began to fear for his family's safety. We're going to stop here for a geography lesson. Once Penn purchased the land, the government started erecting military forts to provide aid and protection to the settlers in that area. However, this was a huge swath of land covering thousands of miles, and many times the settlers would have to walk or ride 50 or more miles to the nearest fort through some seriously hostile territory and rugged terrain. For anyone not familiar with this territory, Perry County has a mountain, ridge, and valley terrain with beautiful thick forests, leaf-covered, twisty two-lane roads that skirt along meandering streams and rivers, and steep roads that switch back over mountains tall enough to make your ears pop. And that's the present day, not 260 years ago before paved roads and motorized vehicles existed. In many places, Perry County likely still resembles that unspoiled wilderness land of the 1750s. The history of Perry County is well documented, and it's kept by the Perry historians at the Historical Society office in New Bloomfield. And one of the Historical Society's greatest assets is a man by the name of Dennis Hawker who is hands down one of the foremost experts on the local history of Perry County. And he has written a series of books covering this in great, great detail. I strongly suggest that you check him out on Amazon, and I'll put a link on the website for you. So, our man John Turner lives in this wild place with no paved roads, no close neighbors, no nearby law enforcement, and things are getting sketchy. When things began to really boil over, he decided to pack his family up and head to the nearest fort. This would be Fort Granville, near what is Lewistown, Pennsylvania today. It's a 65-mile trek through extremely rugged terrain. When John and his family finally get there, and they tell of the trials of the white settlers, Captain Edward Ward raises the militia to go deal with this problem. John Turner is given the rank of sergeant and told to hold down the fort with the remaining 24 men, while Ward takes the bulk of the forces to go quell the uprising. So Ward's militia left Fort Granville on July 30th, 1756. Seeing such a large force leave this fort, the local Muncie Indians and their French allies, under the command of Francois Coulon de Villiers, took the opportunity to attack the fort. Sometime around midnight, de Villiers and the war party set fire to the palisade of the fort and they exposed the 24 defenders and all of the petrified women and children inside. Again and again, de Villiers offered quarter and the acting commandant refused. Eventually, the commandant was killed and John Turner became the highest-ranking officer alive. When quarter was offered once more, He surrendered the fort. There are some accounts that feel this was cowardly. I don't agree. For more than 18 hours, 24 men held off an attack from 155 aggressors until all that remained were two men, one of which was mortally wounded, and a score of terrified women and children. I think he rightly calculated that they had better chances of survival if he opened the gate. So the fort is surrendered and the inhabitants are marched outside to watch as de Villiers made an example of John Turner. He's tied to a stake while the Muncie and French Allied soldiers heat old gun barrels in a roaring fire. The red-hot gun barrels are then pressed into his flesh for three hours. The torture was brutal and horrific, and every time John faltered, the torture was stopped to prolong the suffering. When it seemed he had neared death, he was scalped and left bleeding. After nearly another hour of this, a young lad is given a tomahawk and held up by his father to cast the final blow into the back of John's skull and end the man's misery. There is great debate as to why John Turner suffered such a horrendous torture and death. Some accounts say it's over a dispute years earlier with one of the Muncie Indians. Other accounts say it's because the Muncie had been friends with Simon Sr., and they believe that John Turner had stolen his family and homestead. I found little proof of either of these theories, other than the verbal tellings and retellings which are not reliable. Each one is slightly more embellished than the last. So I don't know that we'll ever have an answer to that question. But what I can tell you with certainty is that Simon is 15 years old when he and his family watch in horror, as yet another father figure was brutally taken from them. The women and children become hostages, and they're forced to march to their next destination. Now, depending on which account you believe, one says the hostages were taken to the fort at Catanning, Pennsylvania, just northeast of Pittsburgh. This would have been about 140 miles, and would have taken a healthy, robust warrior a solid 46 hours to walk and these were not robust warriors it likely took over a week to make this trip another account says the hostages were marched to fort de chartres in illinois country that trek is more than 800 miles but it's it's difficult for me to believe that they would have marched right past fort catanning to de chartres so the most likely account is that fort catanning was their destination but even a mere 140 mile trek with women and small children in tow, could not have been a pleasurable trip. Keep in mind that Mary's son, John Turner Jr., was only two years old. I can imagine what it would have taken to walk a week-long journey in a heavy woolen skirt with a fussy two-year-old on your hip. Anyway, the beleaguered captives made it to Fort Katanning, and they are promptly split up and sold off to various local tribes. Thirteen-year-old James, Mary Turner, and two-year-old John Jr. are taken by a band of Shawnee warriors. Ten-year-old George is taken by a Lenape band. And fifteen-year-old Simon is given to the Ohio Mingos. There's no mention of what happened to Thomas, but he's 17 or 18 years old at this point, and he likely had already left the nest. Now, the Mingos aren't a tribe like most white folks think today. The the Mingo's were a confederation of local tribes, made up primarily of Seneca and Cayuga, with a smattering of Susquehannock, Shawnee, Oneida, Mohawk, Lenape, and other Delaware tribes in there. And this confederation was part of an even larger, extremely powerful confederation known as the Iroquois Confederacy. The Mingo chief is a man named Gayasute, and he takes Simon to live at his village near Lake Erie. So, to this week-long walk from Hades, Simon now adds another week's worth of walking, very likely at a more brisk pace than before. And while he's pretty fit for a teenager on the frontier, he now faces his greatest challenge, the gauntlet. For those who don't know what it is, I'll explain. It's primarily an eastern woodlands thing, but other tribes had similar rights, and it's a test to measure the strength, the cunning and the resolve of prospective adoptees. So what happens is the whole tribe turns out and forms two long lines facing each other with an aisleway down the middle. The chief is at one end of this open corridor and the captive is at the other. Each of the tribe's villagers are pumped up and eager and they're wielding a stick, a club, a thick knobby branch, or just a pile of rocks. At the signal, the captive is shoved into the aisleway, and the tribesmen have at it. The captive is beaten, screamed at, shoved, and slammed around, all the while trying to get down the causeway to the chief. So while this terrifying run is being made, the chief is watching carefully, taking a measure of the captive's reactions. If the captive makes it through the gauntlet and shows courage and cunning, they are welcomed into the tribe. They're given clothes and food and all the rights of a full tribal member. If the captives should fall during the gauntlet, however, they receive a severe beating, and they're forced back to the beginning of the gauntlet to do it again. I can imagine how he must have felt staring down that aisle, tired from a two-week journey of misery, wondering if he had the strength to reach Chief Gaiusute at the other end, knowing he was about to be clubbed and beaten. For anyone who needs a visual on this, in season 4 of Outlander, Roger is taken by the Mohawk Indians, and he is forced to run the gauntlet. I believe it was episode 11. There are no details given of Simon's gauntlet run, but he must have undoubtedly impressed Gaiusute, because his trials ended immediately and he was adopted as a full-fledged member of the tribe. For the next seven years, Simon completely assimilated. He learned 11 native languages, and he fell in love with the land and the people. He proved himself invaluable in being able to translate between various tribes, and most particularly between the tribes and the whites. So the year is 1758, and Simon has now spent two years living as a Seneca. The French and the English have been locked in conflict for almost four years now over who is going to possess the land that the natives live on. The British have rallied their native allies, and the French have rallied their native allies. The French and their allies, as well as a regiment of Scots allies, have holed up at Fort Duquesne near current-day Pittsburgh. The British and their allies are trying to dislodge the French from the land, and Simon served valiantly during the attack on Fort Duquesne, and he proved himself to be a great warrior. This wasn't lost on Guyasuté. Realizing they were beaten, the French and the Scots fled into the night, burning Fort Duquesne down as they left. Now the Brits take over the place and they rebuild a new fort, calling it Fort Pitt after their current Prime Minister. and This is where the name Pittsburgh comes from. So to make sure the French could never again get a foothold in the region, the British struck upon an idea. It was called the Treaty of Easton because it was signed in Easton, Pennsylvania, in October of 1758. Thirteen Native nations signed the agreement with the Iroquois Federation and the British. Simon was the chief interpreter at this meeting. Now, this treaty basically said that all the tribes would agree not to join the French in fighting the English, and in turn, the English would give them back select pieces of land. The natives also were guaranteed that the British government would recognize their hunting rights in the Ohio Valley. And they would no longer allow white settlers to set up west of the Alleghenies. More importantly, the British promised to vacate the Allegheny area, thereby returning the lands around Fort Pitt back to the natives. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been for the natives? The white folk would soon be contained on one side of the Alleghenies, and there'd be no more conflict with squatters. Well, the time for the white man to give back the Ohio Valley came and went, and the natives raised concerns. The raid started again, and for the next five years it was pretty much the same old story. Then in February 1763, the Treaty of Paris was signed, ending the hostilities between France and Britain and the natives eagerly expected all of these foreigners to go home. But a scant three months later, it was clear that the British had no intention of keeping their promises. Despite several attempts to move them along using diplomacy, by the end of the spring and into the early summer, the British still held the forts, and the natives had had enough. In May of 1763, Ottawa leader Pontiac, threw down the gauntlet, and he gathered his people. And the Potawatomies and the Ojibwa, and the Mingos, and the Seneca, the Wyandotte and Miami, and Kickapoo, the Illinois, pretty much anyone else who was sick of the White Lies, joined together and began to reclaim their land by force. One by one, the British forts came under siege. The attack on Fort Pitt was under the command of Gaiusute and his Mingos, including Simon. The British garrison were already having a hard time of it. They had food shortages and munition issues and had a raging case of smallpox going through the fort. And falling under siege to these Indians was the final straw. A trader and a militiaman named William Trent took two blankets and one pox-ridden handkerchief from the sick ward and presented them as gifts to the two Mingo delegates who asked for a parley. That night, he wrote in his journal that he had done this, and I quote him here, So they know what I might think of them. I hope it will have the desired effect. For the next month, the British held Fort Pitt against the native besiegers. Finally, British reinforcements arrived in early August, and the siege was broken. Now, for those paying attention, what we just witnessed is the first ever in American history attempt at biological warfare albeit a lousy attempt. What William Trent failed to understand was that smallpox is seldom passed through the touch of physical items and more often it's an airborne transmitted disease. So dodging the smallpox bullet the natives melt back into the wilderness of Ohio Territory and the British continue to hold Fort Pitt. For a while everything's fairly quiet but Simon has had his fill of the British lies and games. Then, in 1763, King George III issues the Royal Proclamation that guarantees the native lands be protected, as well as their ability to trade openly with any British subject. It also ensures they will not be molested or attacked in any way. I'm fairly certain that the natives were not buying it at this point. Several treaties had been made, and all had been broken and the British weren't endearing the natives to them sticking around. Simon finally threw his hands up over the whole thing, and he returns back to his mingo life. Then comes the news. With the Seven Years' War over, all white and native prisoners must be returned to their original lives. In November of 1764, Simon is forced back into the white world. I've pondered this at great length what this decision must have been like for him. Sure, he could have stayed with the Mingos and lived out the rest of his life in relative solitude, at least until the white settlers once again come encroaching on his lifestyle and lands, but he also had a rare gift of being able to represent twelve different languages and the people who spoke them, including English. What a unique opportunity to be the voice of so many people to fight against the oppression of his adoptive family. I wonder if he agonized over returning to the white world. But he did return, and he served the British government well. Keep in mind, this was before the Revolution, and all of the colonists served the British government. He took on a role as an interpreter, and a negotiator between the Iroquois and the British, and he was instrumental in bringing about the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1768. In fact, he served admirably with George Rogers Clark, Daniel Boone, and many other famous militiamen. He was a gifted scout, a talented spy, a brave soldier, and he was famous as an intermediary. When Lord Dunmore's war began in 1774, he was acting as a go-between for the colony of Virginia and the Shawnee and Mango nations, but his life was about to implode. See, The colonies were fed up with British intervention in their lives, and grumblings began about breaking free of the king's control. Simon was on the fence for a while, but then he sided wholeheartedly with the colonists. The British hadn't kept any of their promises to leave, and Simon believed they couldn't be trusted. The date was April 30th, 1774, and Simon and a group of Virginia settlers were on an expedition. Now, while out and about, Another group of Virginia settlers lured a family of mingos into their camp with promise of drinks and games. The mingos were friendly with the colonists, and this wasn't an uncommon thing to do. It's kind of like going over to your neighbor's house for a card game. In fact, Johnny Logan, the war leader of the mingos, was considered a friend by many of the Virginia colonists. However, it just so happened that the family that was invited in for a night of revelry and camaraderie were the family... Of Johnny Logan. When the Mingos arrived, two men, Jacob and Daniel Greathouse, sprang upon them and slaughtered them, even going so far as to slice up Johnny Logan's pregnant sister and scalp her unborn child. When Simon came upon this scene, he was sick. The commander of their unit knew Johnny and Simon were close friends, and he instructed him to break the bad news to the war chief and bring him back to the fort. Simon must have been heartsick to have to deliver this news. And I would imagine this would have created an internal turmoil for Simon. The Mingos were his own family, after all. But Simon did indeed deliver the news, and Johnny Logan refused to return to the fort. Simon was given a promotion for his effort, but it didn't sit well with him. The turmoil grew exponentially when Simon learned that the British king had passed the Intolerable Acts. Those were the British response to the Boston Tea Party and all those rebellious colonial brigands. The reason this was a problem for Simon was that it now meant the militia could possibly be called to put down their own countrymen. Objection, which Simon was often known to do, was paramount to treason and execution. Many of the militia at this point flipped off King George and moved west of the Alleghenies in open defiance. Many of them threw themselves headlong into the American Revolution. Simon was one who signed up to throw off the yoke of the British. In early 1778, Simon was one of 500 volunteers on an expeditionary raid to destroy Indian caches in northeast Ohio. These volunteers were led by Colonel William Crawford, who was a close friend of George Washington's. The expedition was going well, and they had traveled about 20 miles down the Ohio River and camped at the mouth of the Beaver River. On March 3rd, 1778, one of the Majors enlisted Simon's help in finding his horse, which had run off in the night. As Simon and the Major are returning with his wayward animal, they heard gunfire. The American colonists had come across Kuskuski, a Lenape village, and had attacked it without bothering to find out if the natives were friendly or not. As it turns out, Crawford had just murdered the family of the Lenape's principal chief, Hopokan. One hysterical survivor, Hopokan's sister-in-law, told the soldiers that several Muncie warriors were a few miles north, and Simon and a dozen volunteers were sent to find them. I wonder if he thought about the sights he had just seen as he traveled to find those Muncie. I wonder if he pondered what was going to hit the fan when Hopakan found out that these white settlers had just murdered his family. He would have surely been friends with Hopokan in his constant dealings with the Lenape. So Simon and the volunteers head north, but the only people they can find are five Lenape women and a young boy. Despite his protests, the colonists killed all but two of the women, And then began to bicker about who was going to get the boy's bloody scalp. The surviving women were taken prisoner and Crawford and the party returned to Fort Pitt proudly with their new slaves and a few pots and pans and a child's bloody scalp. The commander of the fort set the slaves free with a heartfelt apology, but Simon, he must have been sick. The turmoil mulled in him for weeks as he tried to deal with these atrocities that he'd witnessed at the hands of the colonists. Killing soldiers was what soldiers do, but women and children and elderly, they're innocent and they're helpless. These were, after all, his own people that the colonists were slaughtering. He had known for some time that the natives were uniting against the colonists, and he had been tempted to join them. And now... It was looking like a real good option. Finally, on March 28, 1778, a Scots-Irish loyalist named Alexander McKee convinced Simon that it was time. That night, McKee, Simon, and five others fled from McKee's Pittsburgh home, and they headed west. On the flight, they stopped at the Lenape capital, and they pledged their support in exacting revenge on the Americans. Surprisingly, while at the Lenape village, Simon is reunited with two of his brothers, James and George, and he convinces them to join him. So the parties strike out for the British stronghold of Detroit. By now, Simon's absence has been noticed, and he's been tried in absentia for treason, found guilty, and an 800-pound sterling bounty has been issued for his head. His brothers are also branded as traitors, and warrants are issued. There's no going back now. The Gurdy brothers reach Detroit on April 20th, and the group are immediately put to work as British fighters. And at this point, it's safe to say that Simon becomes a royal pain in the Colonial Army's backside. Now, besides the military combatants, Moravian missionaries are also frequently targeted by natives, and here's why. Imagine some guy shows up in your front yard, and he starts screaming about you being a horrible savage. He tries to convince your neighbors that they need to drive you out. He tells them that you don't believe in the one true God. He tells them that you sacrificed your children to pagan deities. He preaches that the white way is the only way. Well, you'd be rightfully upset, even if not if it was true, and he would probably do your best to get his butt off your yard as quick as possible. This summarizes the relationship between the Moravians and the natives. Incidentally, most pre-white Native beliefs aren't that far off from Christianity. And Natives love their children as much as Whites do, just in case you didn't know. So that's how the tribes saw these overbearing preachers. So you'll have to forgive them if they're a little grumpy about wanting these guys to go away. So scouting parties were often sent out to harass them, or if they refused to leave, kill them. One such preacher by the name of David Zeisberger, was the target of one of these raids. It just so happened that he was preaching to a tribe of Christianized Delaware Indians at the time of the raid, and the Delawares protected him. Simon and his band of warriors were forced to retreat. But it is at this point that the slander campaign kicks off in earnest. One thing to know about Moravian missionaries at this time? They were excellent motivators and their entire life was dedicated to persuading people to their way of thinking. So, it won't be surprising that the Mingos, and Simon in particular, were the subject of many a hateful sermon. This, combined with the missionaries' ability to fire and brimstone their letters back east, or to fellow white folk in the area, would certainly have spread his notoriety far and wide. As most of the natives in this day did not read or write English, no one would have refuted anything the missionaries were saying. If we add to this fact that the natives had something the white men wanted, like all that prime real estate, well, I'm sure you can see what's going to happen here. Many of what the missionaries were saying was true. Simon and his band of Shawnee, Mingos, and Lenape did lead raids against the Americans, from Cincinnati to Virginia to Kentucky. There was many an American soldier who died at Simon's hand. That isn't disputed and settlers throughout the Ohio frontier could read about him on a regular basis. What they didn't read was that Simon was known to buy the freedom of the women and children so they could go free, even though he did this countless times. They didn't read about his saving the lives of Simon Kenton or Daniel Boone or the countless other frontiersmen, even though he did it countless times. Even today, we really don't see those stories. The hand-drawn images of the time portrayed him as a scowling, snarling, and scarred man. He was shown in the menacing, flowing cape of a pirate, with a tomahawk in one hand and a cutlass in the other. Or he was portrayed in full war paint with a roach of feathers decorating his savage head. He was given monikers, like the White Savage, the Great Renegade. He was by no means a patriot, nor do I believe he was a traitor. I think he was one guy, trying to do the best he could with what he was given." He did kind of blow it when he led a failed raid at the Battle of Blue Licks on August 19, 1782 against his one-time friend Daniel Boone. Boone's son was killed in the ambush, and Boone himself was forced to flee. And one thing you might not realize about Daniel Boone was that his never-quit attitude was also applied to seeking revenge. Simon was forced to flee back to Illinois Territory with a vengeful Daniel Boone on his tail. While this is all going on, an event occurs called the Massacre at Nodden Hutton. G-N-A-D-E-N-H-U-T-T-E-N. Nodden Remember those Moravian missionaries? They had their wives and children at their settlement at Nodden Hutton in Ohio. Also in the settlement lived all the converted Lenape and Mohican Indians with their families. These people were pacifists and chose neither side in any conflict. They only wanted to spread the word of the Lord and help convert new souls. So when a contingent of American militiamen attacked their village in March of 1782, they did nothing to defend themselves. These American soldiers tortured little children. They killed the old men and the women, and the Moravians could not fight back. They dropped to their knees and sung hymns and tried to encourage their brethren to be strong until every one of the 96 of them were dead. Simon wasn't at Nadenhutten, nor was Colonel William Crawford. But Crawford had been captured shortly after, and he was at a village in the upper Sandusky area of Ohio when Simon appears in the village. At that point, Colonel William Crawford would pay the price for Nodden Hutton. Simon sees Crawford tied to a stake in the center of the village, and he starts to appeal to the chief for the man's release. And he was very pointedly told that the colonel was going to be executed for Nodden Hutton, and if Simon had an issue with it, he could join the man tied to the stake. So Simon was forced to watch as Crawford was tortured to death. All the while pleading for Simon to end his misery with a bullet to his chest. One man who later escaped spread the story that Simon laughed at Crawford as he begged for mercy. This isn't true, but it didn't help Simon's reputation. But something amazing did happen to Simon at this point. He met an 18 year old captive white woman while he was there. And first he tried to buy her freedom. Then he created a ruse to escort her to a visit to her mother, promising that he would return her promptly. The two then met before a German preacher, who married them. Her name was Catherine Malotte. Two years later, Simon and Catherine welcomed their firstborn son, and they named him John. But sadly, the infant died soon after. Then the Northwest Indian War broke out between the natives and the American colonists, and Simon returned to the front only occasionally getting back to Illinois country to see his love. In 1786, the couple welcomed their first daughter, Anne. But even this couldn't keep Simon from returning to the war front. In 1788, their son Thomas was born, and in 1791, another daughter, Sarah, joined the family. But the tide of war was constantly turning, and Simon was often away from home. At one battle, St. Clair's defeat in 1791, Simon and a confederation of more than 10 other tribes stood a 1,000 strong against 1,500 Americans. At the end of it, only 21 Natives died compared to the 656 Americans that were either killed or captured. That was the worst defeat in the history of the colonies, and the worst defeat ever inflicted by Native Americans up to that point. In 1795, the war came to a grinding halt, and Simon is now 55 years old. He opened an Indian trade center at Lower Sandusky, and he named it Gertie's Town. Today, this is near present-day St. Mary's in Mercer County. Shortly after, he sold his trading post to an Irishman named Charlie Murray, and he moved to Canada. I would imagine he was anxious to get home to his family, and away from the warfare that had taken up the majority of his life. The British government rewarded his years of service with a land grant in Malden, near present-day Amherstburg which is Ontario, and he quietly retired. Two years later, his son, Predu was born, and Simon finally got to see one of his children take their first steps. He worked his farm and he raised his family until his health began to decline. William Clark, of Lewis and Clark fame, gives us our final journal entry about Simon Gertie. On March 26, 1804. Clark is writing about visiting the local Indian camps and he states that Simon has rheumatism, very bad and that his vision was failing him. On February 18, 1818, the enigma that is Simon Girty, now completely blind and bent with arthritis, took his last breath and he died at the age of 77. He was buried on his property in Malden. There is little doubt of his contributions to the relationships that were formed between the Natives and the Whites. And even his adversaries speak of him as being honest and skilled in languages and negotiations. So why is he villainized so badly? One journal I read states, He was the offspring of crime, his parents being irredeemably besotted and vicious. Another reads, Simon Gertie was as brutal, depraved, and wicked a wretch as ever lived. Incidentally, that was from one of the Moravian missionaries, John Heckewelder. One even relays a very detailed conversation between two people at Fort Henry about 55 years after the fact, and almost none of the information is accurate, but Simon is very blatantly portrayed as a jerk. One journal I read states, In vain he tried to become a decent citizen and command some degree of respect. The depravity of his untamed and undisciplined nature was too apparent. He was abhorred by all his neighbors. Probably the most egregious is this one Simon grew into a great hunter among the Senecas, unfortunately, a hunter of helpless human beings as much as game, and for twenty years his name was the terror of every white household in the Ohio country. You know, if Simon Girty had worn a kilt and led his natives across the moors of the Bannock Burn in Scotland, he'd have been considered a hero. One might argue that. William Wallace never brutally massacred his enemies in revenge. I'd encourage you to read up on the Sheriff of Lanark. And Wallace is the epitome of a national hero. Or perhaps, if Simon Gertie were a French peasant girl, bedecked in armor, leading her people to repel the invaders from Orléans in 1429, then he'd be a national hero. Or an Iceni queen named Boudica, leading her people to repel the invaders... There would probably be a statue of him in the town square. There are plenty of examples throughout history of a man who started out on one side, was forced to join the other, then flipped back to defend something he loved. Read up on Arminius in the Teutoburg Forest Massacre of the Romans. That's a great story. In the 1992 novel Wilderness, The True Story of Simon Gertie, Authors Philip Hoffman and Timothy Truman compiled a list of 19 people that owed their lives and decent treatment to Simon. We know that he went to great lengths to see that people were treated decently, even paying out of his own pockets for the captive's freedom. So why is it that Simon's story is told with such contempt? I think it's because the guys who are writing it understood they could spin the story to make Simon and his heathen band of brothers the clarion call they needed to motivate people to eradicate the natives and give up the prime land. They needed a poster child to kill the natives, and he made it too easy for them to spread rumors. So let's debunk some of the rumors. One is that he married a native woman, a daughter of Puxenwa, in 1779. Paxenwa was a minor Shawnee war chief. He had one daughter, and the rest were sons. The daughter's name was Piasa. Her little brother's name was Tecumseh. Piasa married a Shawnee, who becomes Tecumseh's right hand man when he reaches the position of chief. So she didn't marry Simon Gertie. Puxenwa did have other wives, and could potentially have had other daughters but this rumor is unlikely because of the timing. And remember, just because you read it on one of those free genealogy pages does not make it true. Without paper evidence, it's just speculation. The next rumor to debunk is that Simon Gertie died in the War of 1812. This was actually his son Thomas. Thomas died while trying to save a British officer on the battlefield. Simon definitely died in 1818, an old, old man, and is even commemorated on plaques in both the U.S. and Canada with his day-to-death. Simon was a, and I quote, stooped and surly drunk with wild black hair that stuck out in all directions and eyes black as the pits of hell for no soul reflected behind. And while I give them points for creativity in their writing, we actually do know what he looked like. In one journal, a Mr. Workman of Ohio stopped at a hotel kept by a Frenchman in Malden. Simon was sitting by the fireplace, and the man described him as being about five foot ten in height, broad across the chest, and of muscular and powerful build. And he was nearly 70 years old at this time. An earlier description of him states that he was a fully 6' tall man with a large head and large dark eyes. In fact, every description of him mentions the large dark eyes, so that must be a thing. Almost all the descriptions depict him as having long black hair similar to that of the native populations, though it was grayed completely by the time he was in his 70s. One myth says that Simon was killed with Tecumseh at the Battle of the Thames. He would have been 72 in 1813 when this battle was fought. Considering his blindness and arthritic condition... I seriously doubt he would have been any good to Tecumseh's forces. Here in central Pennsylvania, where Simon was born, we have our own share of stories and myths. One involves a cave located along Route 11 and 15 between the towns of Duncannon and Liverpool. It's said that Gertie would hunker down in the cave to count his spoils from robbing the ferry boats that frequented the Susquehanna River. Truthfully, at the time this was supposedly happening, he was living with the Seneca in Ohio. There is one final crazy story that I actually cannot prove or disprove. It said that Simon got into a verbal altercation with a Shawnee man over some trade dispute. The two men argued for a bit, and then the Shawnee implied by a modern sexual innuendo still used today that Simon lacked courage. It said. That Simon instantly produced a half a keg of black powder, snatched up a fire stick, and called the Shawnee to come stand by it with him. Well, the native freaked out and made a hasty retreat. I don't think that one actually needs to be debated. I think it's just fun to imagine it happening. So, that brings us to the end of Simon's story. In this modern age of media misinformation, I hope you'll leave today with a sense that this isn't a new concept. And I hope you've gotten a glimpse of what Simon's life must have actually been like. Remember to view history with an open mind. Winston Churchill said, history is written by the victors. And this is very true, especially when we realize that the people who created our country were people just like us. Thanks for coming along with me on this journey. I encourage you to check out the website at fursandfrontiers.com for resources and other great stories about the North American fur trade. Have a great weekend, everyone, and keep your powder dry.